Board Gaming with Education, a podcast for anyone curious about how games and education mix. We explore various topics like game-based learning, gamification, and board games, and the impacts they have on learning. Here's your host, Dustin Statz. Welcome to episode one of season seven. In this episode, we have a awesome guest, Alex. He is teaching social studies in Omaha, Nebraska, my hometown. And he goes over some ways he's used games, not only in his social studies classes, but in theater and also in English language learning when he spent some time in China. So today's episode, you have a little bit more time to enter our giveaway for season seven sponsored by worlds xp and to enter the giveaway you can do one of four things or you could do all four number one listen to this episode and enter the secret word into our google survey and you will be entered into the giveaway number two join our facebook group game-based learning and gamification in education and invite a friend to join the group. For each friend you invite into the group, you will earn another entry into the giveaway. Also share the Facebook post that is pinned at the top of our page or in that Facebook group. You can share the post. And number four, let us know what we can do at Board Gaming with Education to help provide more content, more value for you. What are some things you want us to do? Maybe bring on teachers to share stories about how they use games in education, build an online space for members to talk about game-based learning and gamification education. I don't know. What do you think? Let us know. And by letting us know, you will be entered into the giveaway. So you can earn up to at least four entries into the giveaway. The more people you invite into our Facebook group, the more entries you receive as well. All right. Without further ado... Let's hear from Alex. Welcome to Board Gaming with Education. I have another guest here with me and a very special guest because he is also in Nebraska where I am from and This is Alex Krimpley. He is a social studies high school teacher. He's going into his seventh year of teaching. He does some blogging as well. And I'm really excited to have him on. He's a friend of mine as well. Alex, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit more to our listeners? Yeah, of course, Dustin. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me on. I've been a great fan of all your work these past couple of years, so it's really exciting to talk to you today. And I'm very happy to represent the very great state of Nebraska. Uh, A little bit about myself. I have been teaching for six years now. I've taught three years in China, two years in the United States, and one year in Spain. Uh, The subjects that I have taught have ranged from uh, English as a secondary language to more advanced English literature to social studies classes, including U.S. history and geography. And I've also taught uh, drama classes as well. So this past year, I was teaching eighth grade U.S. history and drama. And this next year, I'll be teaching social studies at a nearby high school. Awesome. A lot of experience. And I forget, we go way back to China. And Mm -hmm. I believe I stayed on your 
bedroom floor in Nanjing, China while you were gone. Yep. <laughs> one, that was pro- one weekend. Yeah, that must have been back in 2013, I believe. Yep. Right. So we have we both have a little bit of experience teaching ELL abroad mm-hmm. in China and here in Taiwan for me. So before we get into more about how you use games in the classroom, what is one time or tell us about an experience you learned through games? Yeah, this is one that uh, I actually I just saw my sister about a week ago, and she had the same high school history teacher as I did just three years before me. And I mentioned this particular simulation, and she was <laughs> she remembered it as well. But this was in a U.S. history course, and it was a colony simulation. So really, it began with the teacher uh, standing in front of the classroom, giving everyone a handout, and basically describing that. You all uh, just landed in this you know, new world, in the Americas, and you need to create a colony, which means you have certain tasks to complete before the incoming winter. And if you don't complete those tasks before that winter, uh, it's very likely the colony will fail and you all will die. And now there were the different tasks included things like uh, planting and harvesting food, building homes, building a wall for protection. Um, and these were all done by just using real basic arts and crafts, you know, cutting things out with paper and coloring them. The thing was, though, is that you had a class of 30 students and you had to make sure that uh, everyone had a job that was working towards surviving, uh, you know, as this colony. Um, However, there was no established leadership. And so you had kind of chaos ensue in this classroom as people maybe didn't want to do their assigned job. Maybe they wanted to mine for gold or look for Native Americans to trade with or things like that. And really what this did is it put us in the shoes of those colonists. And we had to grapple with the same decisions that those people had to make uh, some 400 years ago. It was a really powerful thing then afterwards to discuss as a class you know, what things went well is for us as a colony, you know, what things would we do differently? And I think it was just really effective at maybe creating that sense of empathy that can be really hard to do as a history teacher. That it's, you know, you can do as much as you want with notes and readings, but sometimes students have to get their hands a little dirty to truly feel the sensations and the attitudes that other people in the past have felt. Uh, so I thought that this simulation was a, I mean, clearly it stuck with me over 10 years later. And it was just a really powerful uh, experience to kind of build that empathy. That's really awesome. I love, uh, you talked about this in the past. I love that mm-hmm. that type of learning activity. I think your teacher did a really great job at creating that raw experience that yeah. we have as kids where we learn through play. And now as a student, you're learning problem solving and collaboration and figuring out how how do we how do we survive in the classroom? Yeah, I, I mean, I told. I mean, that's definitely been something that I've started to add into my classrooms. This past year, when I was doing eighth grade history, I didn't do it perfectly, but I was trying to do a simulation similar to that for every single unit that we did. So there would be just certain days. I mean, some of them went better than others. And some of them were me finding things online or me thinking like, oh, let's try this and see how it works. But yeah, I just think it's a really powerful way to connect the past to the present. Awesome. So you play a lot of board games. I Well, at least you played some with me. So mm-hmm. I, I think you play a few. Uh, how do board games, like when did you first decide to use board games in the classroom? Yeah, well, I, that's a good question too. But I think 
as a teacher, you need to be having fun in your classroom in order for students to be having fun. And so naturally, I'm going to incorporate things that I like into my classroom in hopes that students are exposed to them and like them as well. So yeah, I mean, we play a lot of board games together. Uh, my wife and I and her family, we love uh, you know trying new board games and uh, playing board games together. And I think one of the ways that I've started, you know, introducing games to students is using a lot of those um, like secret identity party games. For example, Mafia is a really common one or One Night Ultimate Werewolf or Two Rooms in a Boom. Uh, these are games that involve, depending on the class size, can involve the entire class to play. And so it really, for me, is a great beginning of the year community building experience where obviously every student is walking into a room with their own self-identity, their own friend groups, their own perceptions of other people in that class. But by making everyone play this large collaborative game, it builds that sense of classroom community that may not exist in the hallways or other parts of the, the room. And it's really great too because it just gives us as a class that shared experience. So it's something that everyone is in on um, it's like an inside joke that just this class has like, oh, do you guys remember when we played uh, One Night Ultimate Werewolf and everyone thought so-and-so was the werewolf and it turned out it was so and like someone else. And it just kind of creates that um, community, that sense of empathy and respect towards, you know, students to students, those peer relationships, but then also for, I believe, teachers and students as well. Awesome. That's very well said. I was just reading uh, Reality is Broken by... McGonagall. And I wish I remember the quote. The book's sitting on my kitchen table, so I might have to add the quote in in an edit post-production. But this is post-production, Dustin. And the quote from Jane McGonagall that I was referring to goes like this. Pro-social emotions, including love, compassion, admiration, and devotion are all feel-good emotions that are directed towards others. They're crucial to our long-term happiness because they help create lasting social bonds. Most of the pro-social emotions that we get from gaming today aren't necessarily built in to the game design. They're more of a side effect of spending more time playing together. Essentially, it's, it's the same thing. It echoes what you just stated. Um, and I, I really love how you say, as teachers, we need to enjoy our lessons. And that's really important. I don't, we don't necessarily need a game every lesson, but it's really important to create a lesson that's, that we're excited to go into the classroom and teach. Yeah. And I, I mean, I want to be clear about this as well. A game like Mafia or One Night Ultimate Werewolf really has very little connection to say social studies content. So it's not, it's not something that you can do, you know, on like a weekly basis by any means, but it could be like a reward for finishing that difficult test. And now we have 20 minutes. Hey, let's play one of these games on a Friday afternoon, something like that. But yeah, it's, it's something that I've tried to connect to history. And at some point I'm like, you know what? It's almost better that this is like a, a reward that's separate from the content area that these students can, you know, can enjoy. Right. Right. So also, you mentioned you are starting a new year at your high school. And I wonder, do you have any game activities, game-based activities at the beginning of the semester planned? Or do you feel comfortable going into a new school and bringing some of those uh, activities into the classroom the first year? You know, uh, absolutely. Uh, to be honest, my f I play a game my very first day in the classroom um, because... 
you know, every other teacher is going through their syllabus. I kind of say that, hey, listen, the first day of school, you're doing a lot of that other kind of technical stuff. We'll save that for the second day. Today, you're just going to get to know me and I'm going to get to let, get to know you all as students a little bit. Um, so actually, one of the games, and you could definitely do this too, having lived in Asia for so long, uh, Dustin, but uh, I do, it's like a trivia game in, with different foods that I have eaten in China. So, I mean, for example, I have pictures of like, turtle, jellyfish, sentry eggs, uh, shark fin soup, which someone tricked me into eating. I was pretty angry about that, actually. But I mean, just all these different types of foods that you know students in Nebraska would not dare ever to eat. And it's this kind of guessing game where they have to, with a partner, make a list of what they think each food is. And I, I'll give them the answers and they have to match them. And I mean, it's a real simple game, but it's they're involved. They're getting to know me. And it's kind of is building those relationships between students and teacher that very first day. Um, so yeah, I mean, definitely going to be incorporating a lot of games over the course of the year. That's awesome. Yes. I, I wonder maybe coming back the same way using some foods from Nebraska and, and showing, a, showing it in with my students in China, like, cause Turkey is not very common over here. Uh, or like uh, something that's very strange from Nebraska, cinnamon rolls and chili. I don't know if you've seen advertisements for that in the winter. Oh gosh. Uh, to be honest, regarding cinnamon rolls and chili, Dustin, I thought my coworkers were just joking with me when they told me that you eat cinnamon rolls with chili. I've only had chili with cornbread. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Nebraska. <laughs> Love it. Okay. Yeah, it's very, yeah. <laughs> yep. So maybe we can talk about some of the games you have used in your classroom. You mentioned you did drama, social studies, and ELL, and you have different elements of games that you use. Could you share a little bit of what you do in your classes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and feel free to jump in here at, at any point, but maybe we can start with uh, a lot of those ELL games that I did really early on in my teaching career. And this was for uh, a school, for example, where I was only meeting with students once, maybe twice a week. So I was one of the two native English speakers at a large public school. And it was really my job just to that one day a week really work with students with like English speaking and, you know, uh, English speaking fluency. Um, and the way that I really thought about it from an international perspective is that a lot of these Chinese students had learned, had learned English from workbooks and always, you know, leading towards some sort of test. So there were, it was a very, very academic knowledge that they had of English, but not necessarily a practical one. Um, and I mean, you probably, I mean, you probably can relate to this. Have you ever had Dustin students that would be reading a dictionary and they'd be memorizing words and definitions? And then if you ask them to use it in a sentence, they couldn't do it. <laughs> That's a perfect, uh, maybe analogy for the rote education system in China and Taiwan, especially when it comes to language learning. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I caught a student reading out of a dictionary, but I, I mean, students just memorize vocabulary lists and they're not sure how, how to use these words. And a lot of times they'll use a word that I have no idea what that word is. It's like from the 1700s and some old English word. And I'm like, oh, we don't use that. Yep. Yeah. And they're like translating some old Confucius term into English. And you're like, I have no, yeah, yeah. I definitely, you can definitely relate to that. But I mean, so for me, at least, I didn't want my class to be like that. So I really framed this was, I mean, when this was when it was very just basic, like 
English language speaking with students I didn't see very often. But I really just framed the entire class as a game show where they would be coming in, doing different activities or different games, uh, all of which required them to speak to each other in groups. Um, and I mean, so I started with like real basic ones that, you know, like I think every you know, foreign English teacher knows like the guess the word game where you kind of have the student up front or two students up front. You write a word behind them and students have to explain it to them. And that's okay. But you have to think that when you do that game, you only have one student talking and a potential class of 30 students at a time. And so it's just not that effective. So I started doing other things. For example, like students had to draw a picture and then they had to write instructions on how to draw that picture. And then they would have to give those instructions to another student who would have to um, read those instructions to a third student. And then we'd see who was able to best interpret those instructions and draw the most accurate picture to the original. So their students are working in small groups of groups of three or four. And that way, it's a lot more, um, you know, peer to peer English speaking and English listening. Um, so that's a really good one. One, another lesson that I've probably used every year of my teaching has used, uh, like a lot of those Pixar short films. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but you know, the short films that they'll put before Pixar movies, I would start, I mean, they're short, you know, they're going to be like four minutes or whatever. I would show, uh, the first half of one and then I would pause it. And then either I, depending on the student's ability level, they'd either write a reflection about what they thought was going to happen next, or they would just, you know, talk to someone uh, about what they thought would happen next. And then you would, then that student would have to describe what that student said to another student. So it's listening, understanding, and then repeating something in their own words to another student. And then we'd finish the Pixar short and we'd see who was closest to guessing the actual ending. But these were, you know, skills that weren't on an entire class. They're in smaller groups, but that's involving students to listen, you know, internalize that information and then reproduce that information using their own knowledge of English vocabulary and grammar structures. Have you ever done anything similar to that? I know I've just talked for a lot, so I'll let you chime in. No, no, that's awesome. I You mentioned that previously we talked about it and I did do it recent, well, maybe a couple months ago because I, I, it's summer, so I haven't been teaching for a bit. But yeah, yeah, I really like that because it, it requires everyone to kind of think critically about what's going on and output something either written or spoken about what they expect to happen. And I really love the game you mentioned at the beginning or the first one you mentioned about giving directions and then drawing and giving directions and drawing. And that's very similar to Telestrations, which I think I like your version better because there's more focus on the four skills and or the two skills instead of maybe just learning vocabulary with telestration just one word or one phrase and drawing and writing where what you had used was maybe you have to focus on the listening and speaking a little bit you're asking students to speak yeah well and it's i mean there's really the four skills right listening speaking reading and writing and you definitely want to have a lesson that somehow incorporates all four of them. Um, I mean, the listening and reading is normally pretty easy, but the, if you can get, the, I mean, either the speaking or writing are definitely essential, right? For students to be able to 
to, you know, to put something out there for you as a teacher then to formatively assess to make sure they got what you wanted them to understand. I think that's a challenge here in Taiwan is that a lot of students, their reading skills are very high and their listening skills are very high, but they're speaking, well, at least in Taipei, it's better than some other experiences I've had in different Asian cities, but I think their speaking skills are pretty high and their writing skills are not so academically high. A lot of students struggle with academic writing. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think to be an empathetic teacher, you know, teaching a language, I always try to be learning a language too. So, you know, even now I'll still try to study Spanish and Chinese, more Spanish, honestly, but yeah, it, it reaches a point where it's like, yeah, I feel really comfortable reading and listening. And then the moment you ask me to say something, I mean, I was just in Mexico for two weeks and I felt like I didn't know anything despite the fact I had been studying it for years beforehand. And it's just, you know, it's a really hard wall, I think, for students to to get over that there's always that, like they call it that silent period, right, with language learning, where you are just, just you're just hitting that roadblock, you know, either like you're just intimidated or whatever it is that you're just unable to speak. Um, but then eventually something clicks and you're okay. But it it is really hard to give students the the confidence to 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 know that it's okay to make mistakes with their language learning. Right. I think that's one thing that I noticed with myself this past, uh, maybe about two weeks ago, when Grace, my wife's family, came to visit her and her parents would speak in Spanish a lot. And they would speak in Spanish when we were like in Vietnam to kind of not let the taxi driver hear what they're saying. <laughs> and I was like, I, I know how to say this and I can chime in here but I'm not saying it. Why am I not speaking Spanish? And I think it has to do with that, just that confidence of, of using the language. And I just need to get more comfortable doing it. Yeah. And I think the, and I mean, this is always, because I, I know there's always um, a stigma that you shouldn't be speaking students' first language in a classroom. But at least when I was, you know, teaching in China, I would try, I mean, I would speak Chinese that very first day just to communicate, hey, I'm a language learner. And hey, you know, maybe I'm not speaking perfectly, but I'm, you know, going to get better every single day. And you learn by making mistakes. And I think if you, maybe as a teacher, you have to be the first one to demonstrate that before other students feel comfortable doing it as well. Yeah, 100%. I think one thing that a lot of, I think... Now, recently, the field has kind of shifted a little bit to say it's okay to speak the mother language in some regard, and it's okay to allow your students to do it in class in certain situations. For me, I always just, I use a little bit of Chinese at the beginning of class, and then also throughout the semester here or there, but whenever a student talks to me, I just pretend I don't understand because I want them to use the English. So you talked a little bit about some games used in the English language classroom. Now you are mainly doing social studies. You did some drama previously. What are some other games you use for those content areas? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, we, I kind of did a similar colony planning simulation with students this year. Um, for the Boston Massacre, they had to... 
we used the our kind of library media center. We created a crime scene that like took place right after the Boston massacre, and they had to go into the media center and read primary account, like primary sources from people that saw what happened, and they had to find you know clues, and um, they kind of had to be detectives, you know, and act as a historian to figure out what happened after the the Boston massacre. Um, I tried making a like Civil War general kind of like role-playing simulation um, that, that involved them rolling more dice than I think they maybe wanted to. But that was when I was like, ah, we'll try it and see how it goes. Um, but probably one that I did that was really, really effective was actually in China. And this was for um, AP Human Geography. But you could probably use it in, a, say, like a 20th century history class or just a regular geography class as well. Um, it was a Korean unification simulation. And this one, I, I'll be honest, I found online. But the whole simulation was uh, those students coming in as a teacher, you demonstrate, you just kind of tell them that uh, you today are no longer students. You are going to be representing different leaders from North or South Korea. That can be like political leaders, like presidents, uh, economic leaders, like major business owners, or military leaders, like generals. And it is your goal today. You're meeting in the um, demilitarized zone, and you have till the end of the class period to reach a compromise of how North and South Korea are going to be unified together. And now each of these roles had an individual card showing what they wanted to gain from these negotiations and maybe what things they'd be willing to compromise. And this was one of those situations where I was able to put it out there. One student was elected to be kind of the moderator of this of, of this negotiation. And then as a teacher, I'm just able to sit back and listen to them talk, which is great because then you know it's a truly, you know, student-centered learning environment. That was one that was really interesting because in I was I didn't know how it was going to work in China where greatly more so aligns itself with North Korea than South Korea, which, you know, is more of the case in the United States. And so I was unsure if they would be, you know, as willing to kind of take part, take part in this simulation. It was really, really successful. That was a really fun one. And I mean, I know, you know, you have a really good activity when any time for the rest of the year, you're like, okay, guys, we're going to do something new today. And then you have a hand shoot up and they're like, oh, is it going to be like that simulation that we did? And I'm like, ah, oh, it's going to be similar, but not exactly that one. Um, so that was one that I thought was really, really cool. Yeah, I think that is a perfect example of how games help to build that student-teacher relationship, especially because now the students are always going to remember that game and they're always going to know that their teacher wants to provide lessons that that the students want to engage in and that the teacher wants to plan for them. The other thing I was going to say too, I just thought about this as a real general one. Um, any time you can put a student, I mean, obviously a student that has prepared and is able to share useful information, but anytime you can put a student in front of the classroom and have them speak to their peers, most likely students, I mean, most often students listen to each other more than they listen to teachers. So if you can put students in those leadership roles, you know, like a, a jigsaw where they're working in groups and everyone has a different piece of information that they have to share out, anything like that, I think is always good for creating that sense of classroom and community and engaging students as well. Awesome. So do you have any other examples before maybe we move on to gamification in class? Yeah, I'm looking at my list. I mean, I have a, a whole bunch, but no, I think we're I think we're ready to move on to gamification. Do you want to talk about class dojo and class craft and those types of things? Right. I guess maybe before we move on to that, and you can tell us and we'll then we'll go into what you like about class craft or class dojo. So as teachers 
just like anything, we struggle with lesson planning. We struggle a little bit with classroom management until we get it right. Mm -hmm. Maybe can you tell us about a challenge or something you struggled with implementing games in your class until you got it right? Yeah, I don't think I, I definitely don't think I've got it right. You know, every, every year is presented new challenges. But one thing I definitely learned this year was that students always respond better to rewards than punishments. So for example, this past year, I had a really difficult class and, you know, it didn't seem like any, you know, any consequence was working for the class as a whole that, you know, any day you'd have a couple students kind of, you know, causing some difficulties. Um, and really the thing that made a huge difference is I started rewarding students with um, like early to lunch passes. And in the past, I had held students late for late to lunch that maybe were creating problems. But instead, I was like, let's reward, you know, the positive behaviors that I'd like to see. So those students that were emulating those great behaviors were the ones that were going to lunch. And it probably only took a couple days before it clicked with everyone that like, oh, I can go to lunch early, too, if I'm doing what's expected of me, you know, raising my hand to speak, staying in my seat, making sure that I'm taking notes or working on that day's assignment. Um, the other thing, too, is just that not there's no blanket classroom management kit that's going to work for every given student in every given class that you almost have to just have a multitude of carrots and sticks. You know, certain things, some students really just like that praise from the teacher as they're leaving the room. Other students really actually like when you make that positive phone call home to parents. Other students are motivated by something like candy or, you know, it's finding those different things for different students, you know, and really finding what clicks for them and then accommodating to, to that student's particular needs. So none of those that I mentioned there, for example, are related to gamification, but maybe that's a great transition then to a gamification classroom management tool that I have used in the past to great success. Right. Maybe you can talk about some things you like about. You said you use Classcraft and also Class Dojo, or did you did you use Class Dojo? I'm not sure. Yeah, I used Class Dojo, but that one was intended for. That one's definitely intended for younger students. I think I think I I think I mentioned this to you at some other point, but at my school district that I'm teaching at now, Classcraft is technically not allowed because. I think they said because it involves uh, like magic and like wizards and sorcerers. It, I mean, it's like Dungeons and Dragon themed characters. And I guess I, I guess the district just didn't want it. So I actually used Class Dojo, which I mean, is really meant more for elementary school students. And I used it with eighth graders. And, you know, there are some students that were, you know, too old for it. But actually, a lot of them liked it once I added a reward system so they could get things like candy or I'd buy them lunch based on their good behaviors. But maybe I'm getting ahead of yeah, myself. Maybe Should we I explain can what Class give a Dojo quick is introduction first? to Classcraft or Class Dojo. I think some listeners might be aware of these two systems or maybe even use them, but maybe for those that haven't or don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, of course. Class Dojo and Classcraft are just classroom management overlays. So they're uh, things that you're going to have going on maybe in the background of your classroom while you're teaching, while uh, students are working on activities. And it really boils down to just a point system for students. Uh, so for example, in class dojo, which is more of the elementary school one, students get their own fun monster character, and then they're going to either receive points for good behaviors 
or lose points for negative behaviors. Bringing up what my what my list of good and bad behaviors were, but it's things like uh, helping another student would be a good behavior um, or raising your hand and correctly answering a question, something like that. And then bad behaviors might be um, off task or maybe inappropriately using your computer at the t- at this time. And really all it is is students gain points and it became a classroom currency in my room. So students could earn these points and then cash them in for different things like candy, break time, extra credit. Uh, I had a couple students get enough that I bought uh, them pizza by the end of the year. And that was a lot of fun too. But it's just adding that, you know, that those positive rewards for students. Now, Classcraft is very similar to Class Dojo. It's really just the the middle school version. So instead of getting a fun, cute monster character, now you get a a wizard or a barbarian or something like that as your character. And students, instead of just getting points, you get experience points or XP to level up your character. And then as your character levels up, it unlocks new abilities and powers, which they uh, can use to influence class in some way. So for example... Some of them would be like, oh, you can use your ability and I'll let you eat a snack in class. Or you can use this ability and it's invisibility and you can take a five minute break and, you know, leave the room and do whatever you want for five minutes and then come back. Um, so it's a little bit more advanced than Classcraft. But again, it's just a system of really points that you're giving students for good behaviors and then they can use those points for positive things in your classroom. Awesome. Maybe you can share a little bit about your experience with both of the systems as far as maybe what worked really well or what didn't? Yeah. So to use it well, you as a teacher have to be consistent with it. This past year when I was doing Class Dojo, I actually tried something new with this one where I had two students. I called them good cop and bad cop. And the good cop would be responsible of giving positive points for students that were raising their hand and things like that. And then the bad cop would be listening. And if I had to, you know, give a second redirect to a student, you know, reminding them to be on task, that bad cop would take away points. So that would be, you know, how I introduced in the class. But in some ways, it got difficult to you know, keep track of those two good cops and bad cops. And I noticed some students were maybe better at being a good cop than other students, maybe. But um, it was something new that I wanted to try. And I wanted it to be a more student-centered system. Not that it was just me giving out the points, but hey, this is what your peers think you're doing that's really good. Or here's what your peers think that you're doing that's distracting. Um, So that was how I did it this past year. Uh, But both of these have really great onboarding systems. I know Classcraft, which I did with high school students in China, they have a whole bunch of different videos that introduce it. You can print off, um, you know, character design sheets that they can then you know, log in and kind of customize their character and how they look and things like that. And it does take, like I said, though, you'd have to be on it these the first couple of weeks that you have to make sure that this is a system that's in place that's going to be used every single day. Um, Classcraft, which I really think was a good addition, is they added a random event every day. So it could be like there were fun ones, for example, like for the first five minutes of class, everyone has to talk like a pirate. And it was like pirate day for the first five minutes or um, the student with the highest, you know, 
XP has to answer one practice quiz question. If they answer it correctly, you know, everyone gets a reward or something like that. And it was really nice, though, that they would do this because it was essentially a daily warm up, like a daily opener every day through the Classcraft system. So one, it was a good way to start class to get everyone in the routine. And then two, it forced students and the teacher to start, you know, the day with this program with Classcraft. Um, so yeah, that was a, it was a really cool tool that I enjoyed using in the past. And it's one that I would definitely consider using more in, of in the future. Yeah, that's awesome. I think one thing I really love about the gamification systems and it makes you take a good hard look at your classroom management system and your rewards in your class and what kind of what you expect from your classroom and how you are highlighting that through your class culture. So I think that's one thing I really enjoy about gamification systems in my experience. And you also, you have to be, like you said, you have to be on top of it. You have to create a system. And that, I think, as a teacher, we kind of, we kind of need those systems in our classroom. So I wouldn't, I don't know if I would say it's a negative, but more for the first time you're getting used to it, just like anything else you're, you're adding into your class. Yeah, no, it's, it's really true. And it is nice how, customizable they are. So you can, for both of these, you can decide what things you want to be positive points. You can decide what things you want to be negative points. I know, for example, when I was doing Classcraft in China, I put a lot of emphasis on students uh, participating and speaking in class. So it was something like, oh, if just by coming in class and paying attention, you get 50 XP points every day. Because a lot, I mean, it's, it's, this is kind of battling that notion of what is a good student, at least in my experiences with Asian cultures, where a good student, you know, sits quietly in class and listens to the teacher. When the teacher tells them to take notes, they take the notes. When the teacher gives them the test, they take the test. But it's all very, very passive. And I wanted them to be more active learners in the classroom, where maybe they would um, speak and work with another student, or where they, when they would raise their hand to ask a question. So I said, hey, guys, if we're just coming in class and being that good student that sits quietly and listens, you get 50 points. But if you raise your hand and participate, you're going to get 150 points. You're going to get three times as much. And that was my way of just incentivizing, you know, that active English speaking that I wanted to see in the classroom. But now say your teaching style was something different, you could completely change the point and reward system to suit your needs. Awesome. Yes. I love, I love how customizable it is too, but I think I, I that's, that's 100% necessary as well. Cause what works in your classroom, maybe even what works in your morning class, might not work in your afternoon class. Yeah. The one thing too that I was going to say that it doesn't have that I know, for example, your gamification kit does have is these really cool stories and narratives. You know, you're kind of... What, what's the word that you use to describe them? Uh, we call them RPG adventure stories where you can also integrate learning outcomes into into the the story. So yeah, I think I think Classcraft does that a little bit now through Quest to Learn. Yeah. Which is, uh, or Learning Quests, I believe they call it. Um, so where students go on their own quest and they go through the story individually, I believe. I haven't, I haven't experienced that, that portion of the Classcraft. I, I think what that is, is that's done with homework assignments, for example. Yeah. Which, yeah, I think like every like every homework assignment they complete, it might unlock like a new 
step on their quest. And I know they also for uh, reviews for quizzes and tests and things like that, they have boss battles where, you know, it's something like you have to defeat a boss by as a class answering different questions and things. I didn't do a whole lot of those because uh, maybe because I'm lazy and I didn't want to have to spend the time typing up, you know, questions just to implement them into Classcraft. You know, I thought there were maybe other ways I could, you know, reinforce things with like a Quizlet or something like that. But I, but I mean, even that though, I feel like is missing that that really cool story narrative element that I feel like your your gamification kit has. You know, here with Classcraft, you create these characters, but there's not that practical use for them. You know, you could unlock new clothes and you can unlock pets for them and things like that, but they're not ever actually taking those characters and putting them somewhere and acting as them and using them in, in a really uh, engaging way. Right. I, I appreciate I appreciate the, the comment. I think that's one thing that we realized, Grace and I, as we started to reach out to teachers and get feedback and also reevaluate what we did in her classroom is realized the XP is nice to have as a behavior system, a classroom management system. But the stories is where the world's XP really shined is the students loved those stories. And to be able to integrate a learning objective into the story, it's just crazy how like we had one part of the story, they had to come up and write, I think, a sentence on the board to create a magic spell to get past the witch. And five students out of their out of her like nine just shot up out of their seats to run to grab a marker to write like a grammar structure in their sentence. And it's just like it's and it's collaborative too. That's that's the key point, I think, that is really great for building the community in the classroom too. Yeah, I, th- I think I think this is actually a really great place where this conversation is gone because now I feel like we're synthesizing so many of the different things that we've talked about using gamification, um, using these systems, for example, of rewards and you know positive motivators to engage students not only to learn content but then also to make them um, you know better team players, more empathetic. And really just foster that better sense of classroom community. I, I, I mean, I've been listening to your, um, you and Grace's, your gamification diaries a lot. And I just think that what you guys are working on, it really is special. It really is cool. And I think that you're just cherry picking a lot of great things that other people have done and really putting it, in, putting it together into something that's really, really special. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, for us, it, it, that those four episodes were definitely a learning experience and hopefully through world's xp it'll be a culmination of of what we learned and the feedback i'm getting from other teachers as well so before we move on to the final segment is there anything else that you'd maybe last word of advice for anyone listening oh gosh uh yeah i don't know i feel like i (laughs) i had this comment at the end of last year where uh i've been teaching now for six years and someone told me that like oh it takes three years to figure out exactly what it is how to do it and i've been doing it for six and i'm still still feel like I'm still figuring it out. I think the most important thing is that you don't get discouraged, that you really have to celebrate the successes in your classroom. I know for me, for example, I had a pretty rough year last year with uh, just certain classrooms and certain students. This is my first time teaching at a middle school. And one thing that I did that really helped me is throughout the day, I just kept a like a post-it note. And anytime something good happened, I, I uh, just maybe took a little note on that post-it note 
And then at the end of the day, I would go and reread those things that I wrote down. Like, hey, that student who normally doesn't participate had a great answer to that question. And it just really reminded me on a daily basis why we as teachers do what we do. Um, I think sometimes we just get caught up in the day-to-day grind, the emails. Um, you know, sometimes it feels like you're just spending an entire day putting out small fires. But you have to remind yourself that you really are making a great difference, you know, for individuals and for students. And there's really nothing better than waking up every day knowing that you're making the world a better place. And so for those new teachers, you know, obviously don't get discouraged and just keep celebrating those small successes. Awesome. Very well said. I think one thing that I recently ran into as a Facebook post going around and it was to post your teaching career in numbers and like how many students you've served, how many different classrooms you've taught in different states or in my case, in your case, countries you've taught in. So I think I think it's really helpful to remind ourselves of those things because maybe we don't see the direct impact, but there is, we are making a difference. And down the road, we hear back from those students and we realize we did Yep, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So let's move into the final segment question. And that is if you are stuck on a deserted island. What three board games would you bring? Yeah, I had to think about this one a little bit in advance. Uh, The games that I chose, they're pretty commonplace ones, but I think they're commonplace ones because they're just like classic good games. Um, So for example, Settlers of Catan, my wife and her family will play this one all the time. Um, So a really big fan of Settlers of Catan. We also like Dominion. Uh, which is a that which is a card build a card you know deck building game, and I play a lot of Magic the Gathering. But my complaints about Magic the Gathering is that you know there's a lot of money that goes into making those different decks. Right. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I'll even I mean one of the reasons not not a major reason, but one of the things I was thinking about uh, when moving back to the United States was like, oh, go into, you know, play magic with people at local card shops and stuff. And it's been a lot of fun, but also it is discouraging when I sit down with my $30 deck and I play against someone with like a $400 deck and I'm like, all right, this is going to be tough. Let's see. But Dominion's really nice because you're building decks out of the same sets of cards. So it's really you thinking about what, um, you know, it's like you thinking about the synergy of your deck to counteract your opponent who's making a deck at the same time. Uh, the final game I was going to say, I'm a history teacher. There's no other, you know, no other better war game than Axis and Allies, which really is just a very, very detailed World War II simulation. That said, I haven't played it, and I forget the name again. What is the Cold War game that's supposed to be really, really complex? Do you know what I'm talking about? Twilight Struggle. Twilight Struggle. Did you know that they have that at uh, Spielbound in Omaha? Uh, yeah, I'm sure they do, I, and I, I love Spielbound. I, yeah. they, have, they have a lot of games. I, I want to say a few hundred at least, but it might even be in the thousand, um, yeah. thousands mark. But yeah, Twilight Struggle. I've never played that or Access to Allies. They're both, they both take a long time. I mean, Axis and Allies probably takes an hour to set up. It's intense. <laughs> um, I, I, when, yeah, when I saw Twilight Struggle at the board game cafe in Omaha, Nebraska, um, I was like to my wife, oh, we got to play. So I grabbed the box 
you know, I start unpacking things and it was like with each thing I was unpacking, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be complex. And then my wife looked at the back of the box uh, or she was looking at like the instructions and it was like, for new players, expect a game to take six or seven hours. (laughs) She's like, yeah, I'm not playing with you. (laughs) So... So I have yet to, I have yet to find someone to play that game with me, but um, that because that one is all just really intense, like Cold War era, yeah. like kind of card game with a board. It looks really cool. I really want to play it at some point. Well, when we're back in the states, we'll definitely play. Also, you mentioned Magic the Gathering. You should give, or we when I come back, we can try Keyforge, which is by the same creator as Magic the Gathering, and it takes every deck is a whole new deck like no deck is the same and you just purchase a deck you don't buy the oh yeah we can definitely make that a deck but oh. you're just buying thanks the again deck. for doing this this is a lot of fun yeah what is this called you said it's called key forge key forge yeah it's it's fun grace and i have played a lot of games of it we have i have three decks and we just choose a deck and we play yeah yeah this looks cool i'll have to check this out for sure all right so thank you again alex for coming on and sharing some insights i think it'll be super helpful for anyone listening especially your challenges and successes especially in the classroom can you share maybe if someone wants to reach out to you where they can find you yeah i have a website that doesn't get updated all that regularly but it's mr crumpley and then it's dot weebly.com awesome and that'll be in the show notes too so and then maybe if someone wants to reach reach out to you directly oh um you know what my email is just my first and last name so alex a l e x and then again my last name crumply k r e m p e l y at gmail.com yeah maybe it's best you just you just direct them to the show notes though alex thank you again and i hope hope to see you soon in the good old state of nebraska or maybe you come out to la oh yeah we can definitely make that happen and really dusty thanks again for doing this this is a lot of fun Before we end this episode, the secret word. You need that secret word to enter our giveaway sponsored by World XP. You can win one of two Taiwan-themed board games. Either Yes Ginseng, where you can learn a bit about Taiwanese food through a night market battle, or Nerdy Inventions, where you compete to make the nerdiest inventions by Taiwanese designer Chi Fan Chen. So, the secret word, or actually secret words is beef noodle is beef noodle because beef noodle is my favorite food here in taiwan and to celebrate the transition from taiwan to los angeles our secret word is beef noodle all right as always thank you for tuning in this week and we'll be back next week Thank you for listening in this week. If you like what you heard, be sure to let us know. You can find us on social media as Board Gaming with Education or BGE Games, or email us at podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. If you want to support our podcast, be sure to check out our support page on our website. As always, teach better, learn more, and most importantly, play more. Thank you for listening, and until next time.